You would think if you spread out the material that we've been covering over four sessions that that would be completely adequate. Um, and as we finished off the third session and then we did our members meeting last week and I'm looking ahead to, okay, now we're going to do apostolic instructions to the church, I'm thinking, well, you just decided to leave like an ocean of material to cram into a thimble. Um, so I'm, I'm just going to forewarn you how we're going to approach this tonight, okay? What I've done is I've tried to organize. There's, there's so much material on this in the Scriptures. There's so much instruction. It's not something God is, you know, like, well, that's kind of an iffy topic, you know. You know, God didn't say much about it, so it's kind of up to us to figure it out. Now, God has written tons about things related to this area of our lives and has given us really clear direction about how we're supposed to live um, in terms of our relationship to one another and how we work together. So, so what I'm doing is just kind of giving you samples of what the Scripture teaches. It's not an exhaustive list of things. Uh, and then I've organized it um, into kind of categories. And we're going to go through uh, five points, five categories of information. And then at the end, I want to close out with four affirmations. This is not exhaustive. There's way more that could be said. You could probably write a book on each one of these topics. Um, but what I'm hoping for is that it gives us kind of a, a framework to attach our thinking and, and keep us directed in how we think about an area that is in so much disarray and confusion in our world. And the reason that it is, is they've thrown out the rule book. They've thrown out the instructions. And that if we want clarity on how we live and how we think in the area of biblical manhood and womanhood, we've got to be paying attention to the Scriptures. And I hope that this will aid us in that endeavor. Well, we began October 2nd with God's good design, and I think really important for us as we think about this and as we interact with other people to, to remember where this starts, where it starts before there was any sin, and God's design is good and it's wholesome, and the way He did it is right, and whatever deviates from that design is going to be harmful. That concept is key. Because people like to, in our culture, claim that you're being unloving, you're being judgmental, if, if you're not affirming of everything. What we affirm is God's good design, and that it is God's design, and it, that it is very good, and therefore deviation from it is going to bring great trouble. Um, I wanted to mention a book actually related to that design, Nancy Piercy's Love Thy Body. Um, really a great read talking about the tendency today to separate um, who we are physically from who we are inside. In other words, to say, oh, kind of like the Greek dualism where you've got your body and then you've got how you're thinking. And so, however I self, uh, however I imagine myself to be is the way that I am rather than the concrete reality of the physical body that I have merging, going together with the spiritual person that I am. 
really important for us to understand that when we talk about truth from God, this isn't just spiritual stuff. This is holistic. It has everything to do with mind, body, spirit, however many ways you want to divide the human being. We are, we are one person designed by God. And if you think about it, the, the gospel, the good news, God is, is saving, not just, not saving us just spiritually. He's going to save us physically as well. That's what the resurrection is about. We're going to live in a physical new heaven, new earth, um, in physical bodies that do not die and do not sin. God, God's goodness is displayed not just in the spiritual realm, in the physical realm as well. And, and, and look, we, we, we ought to know this. Like we're coming up on Thanksgiving when we probably eat too much. But, you know, God could have made food taste bad. Or he could have made it like you just get it intravenously, or you just take a little gray pill, but he didn't do it that way. He created a physical universe to be enjoyed and to be integrated. In fact, it's one of the ways that actually God gets to our heart is, is the way our physical experiences open our eyes to who we are, our weaknesses, and, and who God is, and how much we need him. So, this, this book is helpful, and um, while I'm talking about resources, shortly we will be uh, sending out a, really a list of a lot of other resources. This is just one um, that will be helpful for you in this topic, along with the um, statements that the pastoral body put together over last year, and w- which will give you more material than the kind of the flyover that, that I have done. Um, I've kind of organized this on my own uh, from that material but that material will be helpful. So that'll be being sent to you or how to access that. Well, we went next to marred by the fall, then the example of Christ and the apostles. Tonight, we are to apostolic directions to the churches. So number one principle that we find in the apostolic writing, and apostles, remember, are the sent ones of Christ. There's uh, those that God used to write the New Testament. Um, Apostle Paul wrote half of the New Testament, so we're going to be going to his writings a lot. Um, But first principle, equal standing in Christ of all believers. Equal standing in Christ. So, Galatians 3, 26 to 29, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, remember Christ is the Messiah, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek there is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, but you are all one in Christ Jesus. doesn't mean that the slaves vanished off the earth and the, and the Jews and Greeks vanished off the earth or that people were no longer male and female. What it means is that's not the most important thing about them. The most important thing about them is that they're in Christ. And there's an equal standing there, an equal value. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. So you are among those families from all over the earth, all the nations of the earth, uh, who would be blessed through Abraham's offspring, Christ, heirs according to promise. The Old Testament, uh, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. The New Testament, he's here in Christ. We tap into those blessings. I want you to understand that this this whole concept of human beings and elevated the status of people 
beyond the, the different cultural and class distinctions that were in the ancient world. The Jews hated the Gentiles. The Gentiles hated the Jews. Um, women had a low status. They were practically chattel property in most of the nations of the earth and, and even among the Jews, um, not consistent with Scripture. Um, and, and what Christianity did was to make very clear to elevate slave and free men, women, um, Jew, Greek, to an equal status in Christ. This is the great struggle of the first century because the Jews had been the guardians of the Scriptures for all these centuries. It was very difficult for them to even imagine that Greeks, that non-Jews would be welcomed into the body of Christ. And a lot of the conflict that you see in the first century and the persecution was because of that huge break. And we've seen in Ephesians how God has this mystery, what was once hidden, now revealed, of, of bringing all into one body in Christ was something that happened, and it elevated people. So I'm bringing this up because today it is popular to think that somehow Christianity demoted people and, and made them less valuable, and that if you are a Christian, then you're actually putting people down, and the opposite is actually true. It's a lie. It, it shows an ignorance of the way the world actually was before the influence of Christianity. So our world... Uh, particularly in the Western world, we benefit a lot from Christian principles, even, even though many people don't even know what those principles are. When we talk about human rights, that didn't come from the pagan world. Um, when we talk about uh, the strong caring for the weak, that did not come from the honor society. That, that, that can't, I'm not talking about the honor society in school. I'm talking about shame, honor, way that things were, were set up versus a Christian worldview. And so it's really important for us to understand this because the, the whole notion is that's put forth today is that somehow if you hold to a biblical worldview, if you hold to what the Scriptures teach and what Christianity, based on the Scripture, teaches, that, that somehow you, you're doing harm to people, that you're the bad guy. Well, that, that's a total backwards history as to what actually happened. This elevated people equal standing in Christ. And we see this in, in lots of areas. We see this in 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, Paul teaches that whether you're single or married, slave or free, your social status does not keep you from serving Christ. And he says, stay as you are. In other words, sometimes you think, oh, if only I were married, or oh, if only I were single, or, or in that society that we're, you know, in the Roman Empire, like in some cases, two-thirds of, of the population are slaves in some way, and they're thinking, oh, if only I were free, I could serve Jesus. He says, no, you don't need to change your status in order to serve Jesus. You can serve God where you are. If you're five years old and you know Jesus, you can serve God. You, you have equal standing in Christ. You, you can bring blessing to people. You can share the gospel. You can do good to those that are around you by the strength of the Spirit. If you're 95 years old, you can do that. Man, woman, whatever your job, whatever your education, there's an equal standing in Christ, and you are able to serve Jesus. 1 Corinthians seven seventeen. only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him 
and to which God has called them. This is my rule in all the churches. In other words, what we understand is whatever our status is at the current time, and that changes, right? We, we have times when we're a student for many years, and then we're in a career, and then we have young children, and then they grow up, and they move out, and we're empty nesters, and then we have grandchildren. We have all these stages of life. There's no stage of life in which you cannot serve Jesus. And, and don't be wishing your life away for the next stage or for, or for the stage that's passed. Serve Jesus where you are. It's who you are in him. Let each person lead the life. The Lord is God's sovereign over these things, and thankfully we can rest in that. In Matthew 19, 10 through 12, Christ is just taught about really the permanence of marriage and that it shouldn't be broken. He gave an exception uh, to that, but, but took really what was in that day a harder line than what a lot of the disciples were used to. And the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. In other words, if there's not an exit out of this, then, yeah, it's kind of a gamble to get married to somebody if it's not going to turn out well. And he said to them, not everyone can receive this thing, but only those to whom it's given. And then he said this, for there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, there's people that have remained single for lots of different reasons, but let the one who is able to receive this receive it. In other words, whether you're married or whether you're unmarried, you can still serve Jesus, and, and if you make the commitment to marriage, then make the commitment to marriage. If, if you're unmarried, serve God to the hilt as an unmarried person. We have equal standing before God. Second, and these, are, these first few are very interrelated, but slightly different facets, a common value of all members. So equal standing, common value. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about the body of Christ with the many members with different functions, all indispensable to the body's health. The Spirit assigns those giftings. He explained it this way in verses 4 through 7. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are the varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation, the revealing of the Spirit for the common good. So, what is Paul saying? He's saying, you know, sometimes people kind of jockey for certain kinds of positions and certain kind of roles in the church, like, oh, I could be really important if I were a pastor, Oh, I could be really important if I had this gift. Oh, I wish I could sing like so-and-so sings. Then I could, you know, forget that. Serve serve with, with the gifts that God has given to you. The Spirit gives varieties of gifts. It's the same Spirit. The Spirit gives us opportunity to serve. Um, the same Lord is Lord of that service. God empowers the activities that we do. We have different seasons of life and different capacities. Um, we have common value. It's for the common good. So you might, I mean, Hannah was talking about this tonight, the, uh, the brokenness, a broken person. I don't have it all together. I, I haven't figured it all out. And that's actually true of all of us, but we are here, we are part of the body for the common good. Use what you have. Stop fretting about what you don't have. Use the opportunities and the gifts that you have to serve Jesus. And this, this principle applies not just to different giftings, but also to our distinctions in terms of male and female. 
that serve God with who you are. Don't wish your life away wishing you were something else than what God made you. God sovereignly made you who you are. God sovereignly put you in the family that he put you in. He, he, he has given you a set of circumstances that are his design. Serve God in that circumstance. And so it's not surprising then that we found that, for instance, in Philippians 4, that Paul talks about um, fellow workers in the gospel comprising both men and women. They're working together side by side in the gospel. Um, in Romans 16, 1 through 16, it leads off uh, commending Phoebe, a servant of the church. And what's really, what's, what's striking about this servant of the church, he doesn't use the normal term that he that we use there. He uses the term, well, it's a common term to minister. All the saints are to do the work of ministry, of serving, but it also has a, 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 an official capacity, deacons whom we elect and whom the early church elected. Uh, deacons are, to, are the official servants that are supposed to mobilize, taking care of, of various needs. And, and so there's debate about was Phoebe, is he talking about Phoebe just in the generic sense, or is he talking about Phoebe as actually having an official position? We, we know um, from, well, I'll get to that in just a moment, because there's another, there's another verse that's going to come into this. Um, and what's interesting about the word servant, it doesn't use a, a feminine ending on it. So there is some suggestion that this was some kind of an official capacity, or at least she was doing some kind of official service for the sake of Paul. And then he commends other fellow workers, both men and women, just a long list of people who contributed to the advance of the gospel and to the health of the church there in Rome. In 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13, you have instructions about the deacons and their wives the term translated wives is the same term. The same term wife in Greek is the term woman. Okay, so I just want you to know why there could be some debate there. And, and I'm going to go to what the, the verse is in just a moment. But, but whether it refers to women who are doing deaconing or wives who are attached to men who are deacons, either way, these women have significant bearing on deacon ministry in the church. I think it's important that we not get caught up so much in the debate that we miss the point of how important it was for these women also to have the kind of reputation and character to serve alongside of men, whether it's their husband as deacons or whether you actually have deaconesses. So, 1 Timothy 3.11, their wives, and actually it's literally the women, likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. And he goes back talking about the men. And if you want to spend uh, quite a number of hours studying this out, you will read arguments for both positions with people that are both devoted to the Scriptures. If, if the deacons are not serving as the overseer, the pastor elder overseers, but they're serving as servants of the church and mobilizing uh, the needs, you could see both men and women serving in that kind of role. And in fact, in the ancient church, um, the second century and, and in those early centuries, 
um, you actually did have deacons and deaconesses. So this is not a women's lib kind of thing. This is the reality of the fact that there's all kinds of service that needs to be done in the church that women are well suited to do. The reality is that we have lots of women who serve in the church, even in official capacities. You can walk any Monday through Friday, you can walk into the office wing and, or, or down into the school, and you'll see lots of women serving alongside of men, serving the Lord, and even being paid for it, okay? And so the point I want to make is that whether you call them an official deacon or not, just like whether you call Phoebe an official deacon or not, she is serving the church. There is, there is a common value for all the members. And so what's happened over, over time is you really have to deal with uh, the culture of the church and the history of your own church as to whether it's advisable to actually have deaconesses, uh, official deaconesses, or whether you, just, you have roles that, that women serve in um, without calling them deacons. Because you, what you don't want to create is confusion about gender, and what you don't want, you don't want to create confusion about authority in the church. And so you have to, you have to deal with what the congregation really understands. So let's take Hampton Park, for example. For a long, long time, the, the deacons were actually the overseers of the church. They... They help with hiring the pastors, you have the senior pastor, you have his, his assistants, and then the deacons were the ones that made sure that things went on year after year, decade after decade, and things were cared for. If the deacons are having that kind of role, then that's going to cross the line of authority for women to serve in that role. Okay? That's still in our DNA to some degree. So it would be difficult. I'm just being straight up with you on this. It would be difficult for us to appoint deaconesses. But if you go to a church where they've got deaconesses, don't assume that they've somehow thrown the Bible under the bus. I want, I want you to understand that there's, there's scriptural, textual indication that they can serve in that role as long as there's an understanding, what we're going to get to, of the distinctiveness of roles, okay? And, and what pastors do and what deacons do. So hopefully that was not confusing, but hopefully it was like straight up honest about what the text says and then how we're going to uh, apply it. So I am grateful for all the official servants of the church who are women, as well as the official servants of the church who are men. And whether we call them deacons or deaconesses or whatever, I think of the line from Shakespeare, arose by another name. But anyway, that's me, okay? That's not the whole pastor body necessarily. That's me. Um, third, mutual interdependence of men and women. I've got, remember the pastors are smiling at me like, be careful, you're about to step over the line, or you already did. Um, mutual inter- interdependence of men and women. And just a text in 1 Corinthians 11, 11 through 12, we're going to come back to 1 Corinthians 11 uh, shortly. But... Paul makes a point, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For 
as woman was made from man, going all the way back to the garden, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. So, so the whole idea where we treat the opposite sex as if they're somehow of little value and that we don't need them, I was thinking the way I would say it in the hallway, but I can't do it that way. I probably shouldn't even say it in the hallway. I mean, that's just dumb. You wouldn't exist without the other sex, okay? Does that, we get that, right? Not only in creation, but just in the way procreation works. You wouldn't exist if there was just one gender, one sex. So that ought to give you a clue that ought to give me a clue as to how I'm supposed to treat those of opposite sex. We are inter- interdependent. We have common value or mutually interdependent. Number four, and this is really where, where the emphasis is, as we looked at the, the many passages, mutual honor toward men and women. And I'm putting in adults and children, and you'll see why at the end, but mutual honor uh, toward one another. First Timothy 5, 1 through 4, this is a summary. Don't rebuke an older man, but encourage him as a father. Honor older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity, and honor true widows. That's just a summary of the information there, but it gives us an idea about how we're supposed to treat one another with, with mutual respect and honor. In 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7, talking about within the the marriage, your wife is just to have respectful and pure conduct submitting to her husband, even when he's out of line. The husband is supposed to live with his wife in an understanding way and honoring her uh, as a weaker vessel and as a joint heir of the grace of life. There, you know, whether you're talking about the body at large and how we treat one another, or you bring it down into the crucible of the home, the, the microcosm of the home, you see this this, this mutual honor and respect toward one another that God calls us to exercise. Look, if, you, if you're putting down your husband, if you're putting down your wife, if you're putting down women and you're putting down men, you're sinning against them and you're sinning against God. God calls us to this mutual honor. In Ephesians 5, 21 to 33, a summary statement again, empowered by the Spirit, we are to submit to one another. We place ourselves under one another and their needs. A wife to her husband, a husband loving his wife with self-sacrifice of Christ, nourishing and cherishing her as Christ does the church. So you have this selfless attitude of both husband and wife toward one another, with Christ setting the pinnacle, the example of how um, those who lead are supposed to treat those that they lead. In Colossians 3, 18 and 19, more uh, terse statement, wives submit to your husbands as fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So it's not always just what you say, men, it's how you say it that God is calling you not to be harsh, um, but, and, and, you know, think about, do you want, how do you, how do you see Jesus treating you? Do, does the word harsh come to mind in terms of how Jesus treats us? We deserved to be destroyed. We deserved to be, uh, to suffer the wrath of God in hell forever, and he gave his life for us. 
and He intercedes for us, and He sent the Spirit to empower us, Christ does not treat us in a harsh way, just the opposite. And so, the husband is to treat his wife that way. And, you know, if I'm treating my wife that way, it surely makes it way easier for her to be able to, to follow my lead or to be supportive of decisions that, that need to be made. First Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8, we looked at this just the other Sunday morning. No one should transgress and wrong his brother or sister in matters of sexual purity. So, the, the world is obsessed with this area, and, but it's obsessed with using others for my own pleasure and indulgence. And, and as those that have been born again that belong to Jesus, we don't use others for our self-indulgence. We treat them with purity, and we recognize that when we don't, we are crossing the line, and we are wronging our brother or sister, a family member in Christ, when we, when we violate the boundaries God has established. And then Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, this is why I said adults and children. Children are called to obey and honor their parents, and yet fathers, and think about, I mean, he's, in the ancient world, the fathers were at the top of the food chain. I mean, you could kill your kids with impunity. You could kill your wife. You had that level of authority over your family. And he says, fathers, don't provoke your children. Think about, think about how countercultural that was. Don't provoke your children, but train them and instruct them. So, you know, even a father who's leading the family, he is, he is looking after the needs of the children and wanting them to thrive. Uh, it's not just a one-way street, children obey the parents. And in fact, not, you know, in, in both cases... Um, when children choose to disobey and dishonor their parents, they not only harm their parents, they harm themselves. And when parents are harsh with their children, they provoke their children, and they fail to train them, disciple them, and instruct them, then you not only harm your children, you harm yourself. Okay? So you have this mutual honor that God calls on us to exercise toward men and women, adults and children. Then finally, distinctive identities and roles of men and women. Titus 2, 1 through 8, Paul writes, as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is doctrine that produces health in people okay, versus what would produce rottenness and corruption. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, that means worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. So, they've got their heads screwed on. They, they're thinking clearly. They're not just mouthing off. They're not moaning about just the state of the world. They, they have their act together. They command respect because their lives match the faith they claim to have. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, so there's a God-centeredness to their life. They're not slanderers, not slaves to too much wine. So, you know, you may be retired. You may be at the tail end of your life. It's not a time to just indulge yourself. They are to teach what is good. And so, train the young women, because they've been through the paces, 
to love their husbands, and that's affection for their husbands and their children. You know, there's so much demand on, on moms, particularly when the kids are young. It's so draining. It's so demanding on them. It can just kind of wear them out and feel like, like this is a never-ending job. And it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to have the affection and the love that you ought to have because you, that there's just so much work. By the way, if husbands are helping out, you can help alleviate some of that, of that pressure. But the older women helping the younger men, women with that to be self-controlled, verse 5, pure, working at home, like don't let your home just fall apart, take care of it, kind, submissive to their own husbands, you're not bucking them all the time, that the Word of God may not be reviled. There's actually a gospel witness in this. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Younger men have a lot of strength, but not always a lot of wisdom. And so it's easy for them. They're, they're sure about a lot of stuff because they have, you know, they have all the answers because they haven't heard all the questions. And, and they're, they're ready to tell everybody what's what and jump on stuff prematurely and not be patient like they should. They need to be self-controlled. And then show yourself, and Titus would have been kind of, he'd still be considered a younger man. Um, He's kind of in that in-between phase. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. It reminds me of what Paul says to Timothy. Uh, Don't let anybody look down on your youth, but be an example to the believers. So be a model of good works in your teaching. Show integrity. You know, if you're, if you're the one talking and you're using the Bible, you can twist the Scriptures to say anything you want, and a lot of people won't know the difference. You can play fast and loose is what the Scripture actually says, and a lot of preachers have done that over the years and done great harm. He says, don't do that. Show integrity. And dignity, have a life that commands respect. And sound speech that cannot be condemned. Don't be mouthing off so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So... You can pray for any of our teachers or preachers in our, in our, um, in our church and in our community because uh, where there's lots of words, there doesn't lack sin. Uh, the more we talk, the more easier it is to say the things we shouldn't say. 1 Corinthians 16, 13 to 14, Paul admonishes us to be watchful, stand firm in the faith. That's a body of doctrine that is Christianity. Act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. So, what does it mean to act like men? And the context kind of tells us that men should be characterized by courage and not fear, by strength and not weakness. They should, they should be active, not passive. They should be uh, looking out for others, not selfish. So, they're not 35-year-old mama's boys that are just in the world thinking that everybody's there to serve them. Instead, they're men of integrity and strength and courage, and they lead for the benefit of others. They do it in love. Now, this is obviously written to more than just men, but the act like men tells you that, that this is the character that men ought to have, where, where when the battle is hot, they're, they're not running. They're standing firm. And when there's work to be done, they're not shirking their duty. They're, they are stepping in 
And they're doing it in a way that it benefits others. They're doing it in love. And we see that in Ephesians 5, 23 to 33. We've already referred to this passage, but we see this in a husband's protective, self-sacrificing care. This is what godly leadership actually looks like. Being a leader is not just about being the boss. In fact, it has has little to do with that. It's about being the servant of all. It's being the one most responsible for the well-being of those that are around you. The greater your strength, and we see this Old Testament anew, the greater your strength, the greater your opportunities, the greater your obligation before God and before before people to care for those that are vulnerable and, and to watch out for them and to defend them, not to trample over them. And so if we think that manhood is this kind of macho roll over everybody, that's, that's a worldly notion of manhood. Manhood is standing in the gap to protect those that you lead. That's what biblical manhood looks like. 1 Timothy 5, 3 through 16, we're told that the church should support widows who are 60 years of age and up if they have no children or grandchildren to care for, but, for, for them. But younger women, Paul encourages to marry and rear children because there's a danger of falling prey to an indulgent, meddlesome lifestyle that idleness encourages. And, and, and the idea is, is that it, it's good to rear families. And when you still are young and you have energy, uh, use that well for the sake of others. God doesn't call everybody to get married, but he does call all of us to, to serve others and not be, uh, live self-indulgent kinds of lives. And, and that was why the church was not just supposed to uh, pay the freight and support everybody, um, you know, every widow. There are other options available that would be more productive. In 1 Corinthians 11... 2 through 16, um, talking about head coverings, and it's a difficult kind of passage, but it's part of it's related to the culture of the times. But here's the main point. Don't let your dress or grooming communicate attitudes contrary to biblical teaching on roles. So I don't want to dress in a way, or groom myself in a way that, that shows that, that I reject God's authority or rightful authorities over my life. And this was true of the, of the women in the church as well. And then Romans 1, 26 to 27, talking about distinctions between men and women, Paul deals with homosexuality and, and really calls it both sinful, like every kind of sin, and unnatural because it's contrary to the created order. Okay? For this reason, God gave them up. He's already talked about um, those that didn't, didn't glorify God as God and were not thankful, and God gave them up to dishonorable passions. He talks about uh, sexual impurity, but then he goes further. This reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And talking about God's design in the beginning of creation. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. There's, there's great caving to this today because of, of the, the way same-sex attraction is promoted in our culture. There's great caving to this even among Christian entities. And, 
And let's just understand from Scripture that that kind of attraction is unnatural. It is not who you are. It's who you aren't. And it's important for you to stop telling yourself lies and and to tell yourself, who am I? I am what every cell in my body, my DNA, what my, my body itself tells me who I am. There's not, there's not a difference between who I am physically and who I am as a person. That is self-creating rather than being created by God when I say, well, I'm something different than what I am. And so he goes on to say, um, men committing shameless acts with men, receiving in themselves due penalty for their errors. So you can pretend like you're something other than what you are, but the universe is wired the way it's wired. And, and you can pretend like there's a virtual reality that is real reality, but the real reality will win. You'll pay the price of trying to go against the way the Creator has designed the universe. In 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15, we're taught that pastoral teaching is for gifted men rooted in God's design and create, and, and Paul roots his argument in God's design and creation and the nature of the fall, not in cultural definitions of right and wrong. Here are the verses. I desire that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty. That means it's not flamboyant. You're not drawing attention to yourself. And self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire. It doesn't mean you can't fix your hair or wear jewelry, but it does mean you're not ostentatious in the way drawing attention to yourself but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Be known for the good that you do for others, not just that the whole room looks when you walk in. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And we believe, looking at all the other passages, this is talking particularly about the pastoral teaching role, not that women can't say anything Uh, to one another when they're in the church building. For Adam was formed first. Look at the, the argument that he makes. Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived. The woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And then this kind of cryptic verse, yet she will be saved through childbearing. Remember that the offspring of the woman would crush the serpent's head if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So, the rearing of children, think about all the demands of that. Think about how that is connected all the way back to the creation mandate, and then also that God's pronouncing a blessing that the offspring of the woman would crush the serpent's head. This is such an important uh, part of our world. Um, our children, rearing them up, uh, the, it's, you can hardly underestimate the impact of, of godly women uh, rearing their children along with their husbands um, in a way that they follow the Lord. The impact of that is huge. And, you know, we have such an opportunity in our day when the, the secular world is saying, get rid of your children so you can live your life. If we will instead follow God's created design and, and have children and rear them in fear and admonition of the Lord, do you realize in, in a couple generations what happens to a whole civilization? 
If, if the believers are rearing children instead of killing them and teaching them, it, it can have profound impact on the culture. So, if we're summarizing, I want to make one more comment about the, the role as pastors. It, it appears, at least, in, and then this is just anecdotal, what I've observed um, in recent years, that when I see people starting to slide on whether women should be pastors, it, it usually, within a few years, if not sooner, they're also sliding on the whole LGBTQ um, issues, on whether homosexuality is okay within the church. They, they often go together, and I think the reason is because when you start to blur the lines between men and women, the distinctiveness, where do you stop? Okay? And if we understand that there's common value, even if there's different roles, then we're not so off-put by that. So, here are the five main principles we've seen, and I haven't, my thimble is overflowing by 15 minutes. Um, equal standing in Christ of all believers, common value of all members, mutual interdependence of men and women, mutual honor toward men and women, uh, adults and children, and distinctive identities and roles of men and women. Now, here are some affirmations to close out. All expressions of manhood or womanhood which devalue or abuse one another are unbiblical and harmful. Second, related to that, all expressions of manhood or womanhood which oppose or undermine the distinctiveness between men and women are unbiblical and harmful. Anything that's unbiblical is going to be harmful. Number three, sexual self-conceptions and practices at odds with God's sovereign creation and scriptural instructions are contrary to God's will and humanity's good. And finally, number four, and this is something we want to keep working on as a church. The church should make every effort to help men and women cause one another to flourish according to God's created design, Christ's redemptive work, and the Spirit's sovereign gifting. There's way more you could say, but I've already used up beyond my allotted time. Let's go to the Lord. Father, thank you. Lord, thank you for how much you give us, and I pray that you'd help us. You're in the surging sea of contrary ideas in our world, and often backed with, with, with every form of entertainment and teaching and dogma, complete with punishment, meted out for those who would call foul. Lord, help us remain true to the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. Help us live it out. Help us, Lord, help us not to be those that are quick to argue, but slow to live out the biblical manhood and biblical womanhood that you've outlined in the Scripture. Lord, we pray that as we interact with one another, and as others observe how we do that, they would see interdependence, they would see honor, they would see common value, they would see equal standing, they would see this body functioning together in a way that shows love to one another and light to the world and glory to God. Lord, help us not destroy what you've created for beauty and for good, 
thinking that somehow we can redefine things and make things better. We pray this, God, for your glory, for the glory of Jesus who has redeemed us and, and is restoring us to your original design. For it's in Christ's name we pray.